0: except by me to Martha he said I am the resurrection and the life he who believes in me though he were dead yet shall he live and whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die do you believe this as we come together to study the word this morning let's begin with a word of prayer Father, we're thankful for this time that we can be refreshed by your word, that you will use your word in our lives to challenge us, to change us, to correct us, and that we might be matured as we understand your thinking. For indeed, your word is your thinking. It is the mind of Christ. It helps us to understand reality as you created it and not as we wish it were. Father, we pray that as we study, too, that we might come to understand answers to some questions and that our faith in the Scripture and its integrity would also be strengthened. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 27, verse 3. Have you ever heard anybody tell you that in order to be saved, you have to feel sorry for your sins or you have to repent. That is often a common error in the way in which the gospel is presented. For many people, just understanding that the good news of the gospel is faith alone, simply believing the good news that Jesus Christ died on the sin doesn't seem to be quite enough for some people that somehow we have to add something to that. We have to be sorry for our sins, or we have to have some sort of repentance of sin. Unfortunately, Scripture never has that as a focal point at all. It doesn't ever say that. And then when we get into the Christian life, and we commit sins that sometimes shock other people, sometimes they shock us, that we have done such a thing, somehow we think that in order to get God's forgiveness, we have to do something in addition to just confessing sin, just admitting to God that we did it, that that doesn't seem to be enough. Somehow we have to impress God with our our remorse, and in fact, sometimes the word confess in some languages is translated with a word that means to regret or to have remorse that's that's true when when i go over to ukraine using the russian bible and even the ukrainian bible that comes across in the 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 translation always has to be addressed and always has to be be corrected in this passage we're going to see that there is in the bible a significant difference between the idea of sorrow or remorse or regret and what the bible calls repentance also a term often misunderstood and as we go through this we're also going to look at three alleged contradictions that are in the bible and understand why they are not uh, contradictions so this passage focuses on the death of judas iscariot and as we go through this i want to point out a few things by way of review as we look at judas's suicide as well as the topics of guilt and remorse and that he had no forgiveness first of all in matthew twenty seven we continue to be in the midst of these six trials of jesus remember i pointed out there's really two groups of trials and each trial has three stages or three trials, or three hearings. There's a lot of debate as to exactly what word to use. I still like the idea that there's six distinct trials. There's six distinct hearings that are taking place. And at first, Jesus is, we're told in the Gospel of John, he's taken to Annas, who's no longer high priest, but he is the power behind the high priesthood. Caiaphas is the current high priest. Caiaphas is his son-in-law. And five of his sons will be high priest over the coming um, next 30 or 40, next 20 or 30 years. And so he's the real power behind, behind the priesthood ministry, and it's as corrupt a ministry as it can possibly be. The second trial, which we studied a couple of weeks ago, is when Jesus is then taken from Annas, to Caiaphas, who is the high priest, and the chief priests and elders in the Sanhedrin are gathered together at that point and for that hearing, and they bring in a lot of false witnesses, and the false witnesses cannot agree with each other until finally they get two that seem to agree with each other, and Caiaphas jumps on that, jumps up, tears his robe when he gets Jesus to admit that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and Uh, this is the trumped-up charge they have of blasphemy against Jesus, and it doesn't fit a number of things. As I've already pointed out, there are a number of illegalities that have taken place in these first two trials. The first illegality that I emphasized was that the verdict could not be announced at night. There were others that I mentioned, but the three or four I want to review you on is that the verdict could not be announced at night and that's why these and these t- first two trials are at night before dawn so by meeting and having a trial they have violated uh, their rules a second violation is that in the case of a capital punishment trial in the case of a capital trial the trial and the guilty verdict could not occur at the same time they would hold the trial and they had to wait at least 24 hours before they could announce the verdict they had to be able to sit think and weigh the evidence a third rule that they violated is that the sentence could only be pronounced three days after the guilty verdict now they're going to do everything all in one night a fourth violation of the law was that no trials were allowed on the eve of the sabbath or on a feast day and they are on the eve of passover of the eve of pesach at this point and so they were not to convene a trial at that point but they've been forced to do so as i pointed out because jesus has blown judas's cover jesus knew that judas had already betrayed him and he points him out during the Seder meal to the other disciples and basically orders Judas to go and do what he's going to do. And so Judas goes to the Sanhedrin because he believes that if Jesus isn't arrested at that night, then he may uh, get away. So they have brought Jesus to this trial, and in those first two trials, they have basically come to an agreement as to what the charge will be. And then we're told in the first two verses of Matthew 27 that they held a third trial, uh, trying to have a semblance of legality. They waited until the sun came up, and then in daylight they uh, took him, they found him guilty, and they bound him, and then led him away to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Now, we'll come back and talk about that a little more uh, next time, but in taking him away to Pontius Pilate, that ends the first three trials, the religious phase, and shifts to the secular phase. And that is important because... Uh, Judas is there waiting. He was with the crowd that went to Garden of Gethsemane. He's the one that betrayed Jesus. That's how he's introduced in verse 3 as uh, Judas, his betrayer. Judas stayed with the crowd, went back to the residence of the high priest, and is present for these hearings he probably was not in the room but he heard what was going on and he heard news that was relayed uh, back to him and he would have been there because as the one who betrayed jesus he might be needed as a witness in the civil trial and so uh, judas is very definitely uh, present the other thing that we have seen is that in the way Matthew presents the, this whole episode, it's very dramatic and he shifts from scene to scene. He begins, of course, at Gethsemane and then at the introduction of the uh, trial section, he talks about the fact that, uh, the, that Jesus was led away to Caiaphas the high priest where the scribes and the elders were assembled in verse, uh, 57. And then in verse 58, But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard. So we have these these two scenes summarized. We're going to see Jesus before the high priest and the formal trials there, the religious trials, and then we're going to watch Peter. So we went from annas to caiaphas and then the scene the focus shifted to peter and his denials and then there's the two verses dealing with the third trial and then the scene shifts to judas so we looked at peter peter's denials and the emphasis there the last time was on the grace and forgiveness of god there we learned from studying peter's denials of jesus That he is still going to be forgiven. That there's no sin that's too great for the grace of God. There is no sin that was not covered or paid for by the death of Christ on the cross. That he died for all sin. That there is no such thing as an unforgivable sin. That some people say, well, isn't unbelief an unforgivable sin? But we are born condemned because of Adam's original sin. There's three things that are the basis of our condemnation. First and foremost, in the foundation, is Adam's original sin. So we're born spiritually dead. This is why John 3.18 says that if we haven't believed in Jesus, uh, we're condemned already because we're spiritually dead then there is a second level of condemnation due to personal sin but we're born a sinner we're born spiritually dead and so there uh, jesus paid for all sin and if we don't believe in jesus so that that is applied to us that cleansing and forgiveness is applied to us it is made real at the cross which is when the certificate of debt was wiped away but it is not directly applied to us until we believe in him and our personal spiritual death is resolved and we are born again and regenerate and so all sins are paid for even the sin of Suicide, which we'll look at in this chapter, because Judas is one of two people who have uh, suicide in the Bible. The other is Ahithophel, who was one of, of uh, David's counselors who had betrayed David, and he is an Old Testament type of, of Judas and his betrayal of the Lord. So there's no such thing as an unforgivable sin. There is only failure to accept God's free gift of salvation and forgiveness and remission of sin. Jesus died to pay the penalty for all sin and to provide forgiveness and cleansing for anyone in the human race who would believe on him. God's grace is extended to all without exception and without distinction. Now, use those two words di- intentionally. When you come along with um, and talk with Calvinists about limited atonement, they would say that Jesus died for all men uh, without distinction. That is, He died for Jews and Gentiles. But unlimited atonement teaches that God died. Jesus Christ died for all without exception every individual. So I always make that point that it's without exception and without distinction. Anyone can come to salvation. Whosoever will believe in him shall have everlasting life. Now, last time when I introduced Peter, I started with these slides, and I'm doing it again today because we're in the background of this is... Peter's contra I mean is Matthew's contrast between Peter's sin and denial of Christ and his forgiveness in contrast to Judas's betrayal of Jesus and his not experiencing any forgiveness. So we learn from the scripture that from the very beginning, it was understood that Jesus was born to bring remission of sin. Luke one seventy seven is the voice of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, whose ministry would be to point out Jesus. And therefore, part of his ministry was to give the knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. That would come through Jesus. At the end of Luke I pointed out that Luke says that repentance and remission of sins should be preached to his name in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem again the emphasis that the cross provides Forgiveness of sin. Remission of sin is the translation. It means forgiveness. It's the same verb aphiemi that we find in passages like John 3.16 and other places related to forgiveness. The God in the Old Testament is a God of forgiveness. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The God is the Lord God is merciful and gracious, long suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. He keeps mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is the God whom we worship. In Micah 7.18, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? See, God pardons iniquity. He does not retain his anger forever, but he delights in mercy. And in the New Testament, this is echoed by Peter In Acts 10.43, when he is witnessing to Cornelius the Gentile and his household, he says to to him, that is to Jesus, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive the forgiveness of sins. That's what we have in Christ. That is a focal point of the gospel. We have this Ephesians one seven in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. Also in Colossians one seventeen in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So we see the, this contrast that is going to take place here between Peter and uh, between Peter and Judas Iscariot. What we see is that Peter betrays the Lord or denies the Lord and then he will seek forgiveness from the Lord. Judas betrays the Lord, but he doesn't seek forgiveness from the Lord. Peter is forgiven. Judas is not. Peter has guilt and remorse. When Jesus looks at him, Luke 22:61 After his third denial the Lord turned and looked at Peter then Peter remembered the word of the Lord how he had said to him before the rooster crows you will deny me 3 times so Peter went out and wept bitterly Sin sometimes some depending on your personality depending on other factors but sin may have a tremendous emotional uh, response in your soul. It may produce sorrow, sadness, and weeping, but that is not necessary to forgiveness. But it is often there. There's nothing wrong with being sorrowful for sin. But you may not always feel sorry for sin. You may not always have remorse. It depends on the sin and the situation and the circumstances. Peter committed a sin he did not believe he would ever commit, and it was a personal affront to the Lord Jesus Christ, and when the Lord looked at him, he knew what he had done, and he went out and he wept bitterly. That is remorse. He doesn't use the word there, but that is what that demonstrates is remorse. In contrast, we have Judas. Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, that is, that Jesus had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. Judas, we see here, is identified as the betrayer. But Judas Judas conducted this betrayal by delivering Jesus over for a price, the price of 30 pieces of silver, according to Matthew twenty-six fifteen, And that, before he did that, we're also told that Satan entered into him in Luke 22, 3. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the 12. Judas made the decision on his own to betray Jesus. He can't say the devil made me do it although he is empowered by satan the devil isn't the one who makes him do it he is the one who makes that choice himself and he sells out the lord jesus christ for 30 pieces of silver in john 13:10 jesus identifies that or states that one of the 12 is not clean that is not saved and that this is the one who would betray him according to john 13:10 and 11 and then again, now this is a separate incident, separate timing than what we read about in luke two twenty two three in john thirteen eleven uh, John says about Jesus, for he knew who would betray him, therefore he said, "You were not all clean and then, after he had announced who the betrayer would be, he uh identifies him through the dipping of the bread, and we're told him. But John 13:27 after the piece of bread Satan entered him and then Jesus said what you do do quickly and then later just a few chapters later just probably an hour or two later in the evening Jesus prays to the Father on the way to Gethsemane, and in that prayer, he identifies Judas as the son of perdition, another term for someone who who is not a believer, someone who is lost. (laughs) But this gives us a look into the soul of Judas. Here is someone who has been closer to the Lord Jesus Christ than any except 10 or 11 people, the other disciples. He's traveled with him. He has camped out with him. They have been in ministry together. He has seen Jesus in any and every kind of situation with that close intimacy and yet he has never believed in anything that Jesus taught. He has not accepted him as his Messiah. He has gone along with everything thinking that probably that Jesus will fulfill these political hopes and dreams that were uh, popularly assumed to be true of the Messiah. But in the end, he he rejected Jesus as Messiah and was willing to betray him for the price of a slave. And so at this point, what happens is that uh, it almost defies comprehension that this man who has persistently rejected God's grace and God's truth turns on Jesus and betrays him. And so now, and and on top of that, he's indwelt by Satan. Now, when that happens, it's at the end. He's had three years where he has been negative, rejected Jesus over and over and over again. And then as that happens, his soul becomes more and more hardened to truth until he is open to Satan. When that happens, Satan indwells him. There's only one other person we know in history who is indwelt by Satan, and that is the future Antichrist. And so the evil that takes place as Satan enters into Peter, and this is... um, uh, I think a function of, of Satan's angel of light uh, m- a motif is described in Second Corinthians eleven fourteen that he appears as an angel of light that he deceives people into thinking he's good, and so Judas has fallen for that deception, opened himself up to the evil of Satan. So I, we can't imagine the impact that that would have on a person's soul. As they are then left when when Satan leaves what 's left behind, and so Satan deserts Judas, and Judas is left to face the reality of what he has done and those consequences and that 's what it 's described here. he realizes after witnessing these trials what is happening. he may or may not have understood that they were going to railroad Jesus. They were going to frame him, and they were going to make sure they killed him no matter what. He may not have, have realized that. Maybe he just thought they would flog him. Maybe he thought that they would punish him in some other way. But now he is convinced that they are going to make sure that he is executed, and the full reality of what he has done in terms of bringing this innocent man under the threat of capital punishment uh, before him that he is now remorseful. And that word, re- translated remorseful, is the Greek word metamelamai. That's the verb, the dictionary form of that verb. And it means to be sorry, to feel sorrow, to uh, regret something and in some cases it almost means to change your mind but the overtone of the whole word is that of emotion not that of thought it is contrasted in scripture with this word metanoia the second syllable there noia second part of that word is from the Greek word nous, which means thinking. So the prefix of that preposition meta is an afterthought. It is to think about something later. But the emphasis is on thought, whereas the emphasis in metamelami is on emotion. So metamelami is often contrasted with repentance, Now that brings up another problem because what you find is some people who will go through a passage like this and say, see, he had regret, but he didn't have true repentance. Uh, That's always a problem because you don't find the Scripture ever talking about genuine repentance, true repentance, uh, sincere repentance, any of those uh, phrases. It talks about repentance, either you do or you don't. And repentance means to change your mind about something. And it, in the Old Testament, it has the idea of turning, turning away from idols and turning to God. That's the idea. It is not an emotional term. It is a volitional term. It is a term that emphasizes, uh, your choice. And so, what we see with, with, uh, with Judas, is that now he is overwhelmed with the emotional consequences of his decision. And that is because he is pierced through with guilt. Now, let's talk about guilt just a little bit. have to understand what we mean by guilt, because this is a term that has some different nuances, and some people are not always uh, sure about what these differences are. First of all, we can talk about guilt in the sense of real guilt or objective guilt, that when you have violated the law, you are guilty of breaking the law. Now, you may be driving 35 in a 30, and you don't feel too badly about that. You may be on the highway taking your Texas 10, and you're 10 miles an hour over the speed limit, and you don't feel badly about that at all. Now what you will feel badly about is when you get a $200 ticket. Then you have metamelami. I know you. You're like me. In Texas, we, we have that regret and remorse, but three days later we're doing the same thing again because we need to get somewhere in a hurry. That's uh, that's just remorse. That is not repentance. Now, there are some people who they get a three or four hundred dollar ticket, then they may have metanoiao. And they change what they're doing. They just quit speeding, and they start using their speed control a little more uh, efficiently. So real guilt or legal guilt is simply when we violate a rule or a law or a standard then we have guilt. And we may or may not feel guilty. We may or may not feel remorse or feel badly about it depending on the circumstances. A lot of times people think that they need to feel guilty about a sin, but the reality is that there are some sins that we're comfortable with, and there are some sins that we know it's a sin and we really work hard not to commit that sin, But when we do commit that sin, we just can't get as worked up about it emotionally as we did maybe the first time we committed that sin, and we really felt badly about that, and we sort of shocked ourselves that we did that and realized that that really is gossip. That's terrible. And then after you have gossiped 10,832 times, That 10,833rd time, you just don't get all worked up and emotional about it like you did when you were young and you realized that you could actually commit that sin of gossip. So that's the difference between true guilt. And then we have guilt feelings. Guilt feelings is is when we know that we've done something terrible and we're overwhelmed with unpleasant feelings of regret and remorse. The intensity of that may vary according to the situation and the circumstances. Uh, sometimes we have guilt feelings even when we haven't done anything. Some people have sensitive consciences in some areas, and they just feel guilty because sometimes they grow up. You often hear about Catholic guilt or Jewish guilt and various ethnic groups talk about the fact that if you grow up in in a uh, an Italian family or a Jewish family, you just grow up being made to feel guilty about everything all the time, whether you really did anything or not. And so guilt becomes a primary motive in life, and that's just guilt feelings. And what we have here is a case where there's real guilt, but there's also guilt feelings. But there's only one thing to do with guilt feelings and that's to seek forgiveness. And that means, Scripture says, to confess sin or to believe in the gospel. And there's only one person who can forgive sin. Sin is not a crime. Some sins might be crimes, but sin per se is not a crime. Sin is a violation not of secular law or civil law, Sin is the violation of God's character. And so I really can't sin against you, and you can't sin against me. First and foremost, we sin against God, and then there may be secondary effects in terms of our horizontal relationships. But when David had committed uh, adultery with Bathsheba, then he conspired to cover it up and had her husband Uriah, Uriah, put in the front lines of combat so he would be killed, and he sought to cover this up. Uh, He committed sins that impacted people in terms of horizontal relationship. But when he confessed his sin in Psalm 51, he said to God, against you and you alone have I sinned. Because the definition of sin is to violate God's standard, to violate God's character, and so therefore sin is only a violation against God. So when we sin, we have to we have to seek forgiveness only from God. Now, if that sin affects other people, then sometimes we need to go to those other people, and we need to make things right with those other people as well. And what happens here with Judas is what happens with many people who don't understand or don't want to go to God for forgiveness. Is that instead of going to Jesus for forgiveness as Peter did, what Judas does is he goes to the chief priest. He tries to solve the problem of his guilt feelings. By giving back the money as if he can turn back what he has done. And so he is going to uh, take those 30 pieces of silver and think that if he just gives that back that somehow that will, that will make everything right. But that's not what happens. What happens is that he goes to them and takes the money to them and then they, uh, they reject it. In Matthew 27, 4, he says, "...I have sinned by betraying innocent blood." See, he's making an accurate confession. He understands exactly what he has done. He admits to what he has done. Problem is, he's not admitting it to God. He's admitting it to the chief priests and Pharisees, and it doesn't matter what they think, and they don't care. He says, "...I've sinned by betraying innocent blood." And they say, "What's that to us? You see to it. You take care of your, your own situation. And so what he does at that point is to try to get rid of this money, and there's so many people who try all kinds of different gimmicks and different things to try to absolve themselves of guilt or guilt feelings, when the only thing you can do is, if you need to, trust Christ as your savior. If you're already a Christian, then you just confess sin. And then if you confess sin, and John 3.16 says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that means that if you keep feeling guilty about that sin, you're just piling on. Now you're committing another sin that's related to that first sin, but this sin is that you're saying by your guilt feelings that God really didn't forgive me. I have to continue to feel guilty. If you believe God forgave you and cleansed you of that sin, then you don't go on feeling guilty. It's been handled. It's been taken to the throne of God, and you have been forgiven. Now you need to move on and go forward in your spiritual life. But Judas doesn't understand any of that because he is not a believer. So the way he's going to handle it is he's going to uh, he's gonna, in one, in a sense, stick it to the chief priests. Now, you don't really get that reading it in the English. But it says, then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple. And the way you might read that is that he has gone to them and they say, it's, that doesn't mean anything to us, go handle it yourselves. And that he just gets mad and throws the money at them. But that's not what happens. It says in the Greek that he threw the pieces of silver into the temple and uses the Greek word naos. There are two words that are used for temple in in the Greek. There's the word heros, which refers to the broad temple. All of the temple buildings and the the precincts and the courtyards, all of that would be referred to by the heros. But the word naos refers to the temple in the middle, the the centerpiece, the holy place and the holy of holies. So he goes specifically to throw this money into the Naos to force the chief priests to sully their hands and to dirty their hands by having to go in there and pick up the blood money. He's forcing them to deal with they said, you see to it, and he said, No You're going to deal with it. And so he throws the money into the temple, and he leaves, and he goes out, and he hangs himself. Now, why does he hang himself? I think this is because of the guilt feelings that he has, because he knows enough of Scripture to understand that he has committed this egregious sin, and he is under such guilt that he is under the judgment and the cursing of God. And so he remembers in the Old Testament that if somebody is hung, that that person hung on a tree, that person is said to be cursed. And his body is not to remain on the tree overnight, according to Deuteronomy 21:23. but you shall bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance For he who is hanged is accursed of God. And so because he is accursed of God, he goes out and he hangs himself. Now, that leads to a realization of fulfilled prophecy. We're going to come back to this in just a minute, but it leads to a realization of fulfilled prophecy. We're told in Matthew 27, 6, But the chief priests took the silver pieces, And said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Now, this is uh, one of those apparent contradictions that we find in Scripture it appears that there are two different stories about who bought the land. It says here that they consulted together and bought with them, that is with the 30 pieces of silver, the potter's field to bury strangers in. Now, let me tell you a little bit about this potter's field. They called it the potter's field because it was an area near the valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, near the Valley of Hinnom that had this rich clay in the soil. And so that was used in pottery. So this was a place where the uh, potters set up their shop, and it probably refers back to a passage in uh, Jeremiah where it, was, uh, it talks about the the potter and that this area was the 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 area where they would get their pottery, and so it came to be called the the potter's field. And so when they purchased this, it's used to bury strangers. That's a euphemism for Gentiles. If a Gentile comes into Jerusalem and dies, well, and there's no family, then they bury him somewhere. This is where they would bury it. And because it's associated with the price of blood, it's called the field of blood. Here, the alleged contradiction is that... The chief priest bought the field, but in Acts 1.18, when Peter is talking, he says, Now this man, referring to Judas, purchased a field with the wages of iniquity. Now, isn't that a contradiction? Not if you understand what's going on. That money is his money. It was given to him by the chief priest. When he threw it into the temple, they're not accepting that money. That's not their money. That is still his money. They can't use it for anything that's related to the temple or anything related to the priesthood, so they have to figure out what they're going to do with this money, and so... uh, they're going to use his money to buy a burial place for him. So he purchases it. So he purchases it in Acts 118. It's his money, so it's viewed as his purchase. But they're the agents, as it were, so they're identified in Matthew 27. So the purchase, this is just an idiom where um, the, the person who is involved is... Uh, is mentioned as the one who carries out the um, the purchase, the transaction. Now, there's a second alleged transaction, uh, second alleged contradiction, and that is that in Matthew uh, 27, 5, it says that he hanged himself. And in the Acts account, it says that he fell headlong and burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out that's a fairly vivid picture but if you're used to watching some of the shows on tv related to homicide csi and all those stories it's not uh, not too graphic not much of a surprise so critics will come along and say see the bible's got two different accounts here but they're not mutually contradictory they're two rather satisfying Uh, explanations for this and i'm not sure which of them is true remember this is a the early in the morning of the day that they're going to sacrifice the, the jesus and the day they're going to sacrifice the lambs for passover So it's a holy day. So Judas could have gone down to the area of the Valley of Hinnom and he could have hung himself and his body is not discovered and they can't do anything with it even if they do discover it until uh, Shabbat is over. And if that body's hanging there in the sun for more than 24 hours, it's going to start to decompose, it's going to start to blow, gases will build up, things like that and then the branch breaks and he falls down and bursts open. That's one explanation that uh, I think it's logical, it seems to fit. The other explanation is that he hung himself within the precincts of Jerusalem, and because it is a holy day, anyone who dies, whose body is left in the precincts of Jerusalem, that would make the whole city unclean, you can't have that happen. So his body's discovered, and they threw him over the wall, and as a result of that, he bursts open. So those are the two uh, explanations that are offered, and since the Bible doesn't go into any more detail, uh, they both satisfy the data showing that both can be true. Judas hangs himself, and then what happens to his body after he dies is uh, what's explained in Acts one. Uh, 18. And then we have another statement related to the fulfillment of prophecy. In Matthew 27, 9, we're told, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, and this is the quote, "...and they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me." That's a prophecy, Zechariah eleven twelve, that is fulfilled in Jesus. One of many prophecies fulfilled during this uh this time frame. Now, I've read a number of different explanations. Most of the explanations say, well, there's just a contradiction here, and there's an error, either a copyist error or something like that, because this quote actually comes from Zechariah eleven twelve And Matthew writes, it was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. Now, again, there are, I think, two uh, acceptable uh, satisfactory explanations. I'm more satisfied with the um, first one I will give you and not as satisfied with the second. The first one is that as the Old Testament was divided up into three sections, the Torah, the Nevi'im, or the prophets, and the Ketuvim, the writings, that at this particular time there is evidence that in the rabbinical collection that the first book in the Nevi'im was Jeremiah. And so Jeremiah was used as a designation for all of the books in the Nevi'im. And so just as Moses is said to be, is the writer of the... uh, of the Torah, sometimes it's say like Moses said, and it may be in Genesis, it may be in one of the other books, uh, Moses is the author there, so here it could be that, that to me is the most uh, logical explanation, another explanation is, and I think this is a little more convoluted, is that since Judas hung himself in the valley of Hinnom in Gehenna, And Gehenna was cursed by Jeremiah in uh, chapters 15, 18, and 19 because this is where the Israelites sacrificed their children to the false gods. And Jeremiah announces that they will be judged, the residents of Jerusalem will be judged because of this, and it is there in the Valley of Hinnom that they will be killed and they will be buried. And so he he is speaking of Gehenna and this curse of Gehenna, and so that's what is being alluded to here, is that uh, this curse, I find that a little more convoluted, but I think it is Uh, it is satisfactory for some people. So the point from this is that Judas's guilt is not resolved because he has denied his Savior. He has not gone to God for forgiveness. And so it's not that he has committed an unforgivable sin, but that he has not believed in Christ, which is the only way to have forgiveness of sin and to have our condemnation removed by the grace of god and that's the gospel is that we can have uh, our sins forgiven we become born again simply by faith alone in christ alone with our heads bowed and our eyes closed father we thank you for this opportunity to uh, come together to reflect upon your word the lesson that we learn here and realize is that Suicide is not a special sin. It's just another sin, and that it is the result of, in this case, of a compound of sins. And, Father, we pray that uh, if there is anyone who is wrestling with that, thinking that this is somehow maybe a loved one has committed suicide and thinking that that's an unforgivable sin, that they will realize that that is not so that all sin has been paid for by Christ on the cross, and the issue is simply belief in the gospel, trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior. And we pray that anyone listening who has never trusted in Christ as Savior, that they would take this opportunity to do so and to believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, and therefore they will experience that forgiveness and regeneration in their life and that they would be freed from the guilt feelings and recognize that their guilt has been erased. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we have learned today, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.